God dwelt in the midst of the camp of Israel. Tabernacle sat right there dead center. And as we've been studying through Leviticus and Numbers, uh, the, the Levite, the tribe of Levi, the priests, uh, the, the lineage of Aaron, all of them camped the next around the tabernacle to protect it so that no foolish person would think they could just boldly come in to see God in the midst of that tabernacle of holy holies, like they could do whatever they want to do and, and result in dying. So God put protection around them to warn them and encourage them and talk to them about what God is saying. And of course, each of the tribes uh, were on north, south, east, and west. And that was the center. And when God moved, that tabernacle was packed up and moved. And they reset it. And the dwelling of the, of the, of the, of the Lord was right there in the Ark of the Covenant. And the people put their tribes and, and, and families all around it. And they kept their eyes on the movement of God. So God dwelt in the midst of the camp of Israel and clearly expected his people to camp the whole camp, not just certain parts, not just the priests, not just the tribe of Levites because they're the closest, but the entire, expected the entire camp to be pure and holy in his sight with, comes with promise and responsibility. When you draw close to God and he's, there's, a, there's a sense of expectation or a promise that comes with drawing near to him, he says he'll draw near to you. You come to him, he gives you the sense of responsibility of following him. And we see that back in Leviticus when we studied it. Two key scriptures, if you remember in the book of Leviticus. The first one was Leviticus 26.12. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. So there is a promise and there is responsibility and expectation that God has set for them. The second one was Leviticus 11.44, and you shall be holy for I am holy. It's a clear expectation, not just for them there, but us for now as well today. God expected his people to live a clean life. One that was acceptable to God in all they say, all they do, how they live their life, not only publicly, but in, uh, privately within the home. And God taught them as they started their journey of faith with him through, out of Egypt, across the wilderness to go to the promised land. He was taking them on a journey of faith in him by keeping spiritual truth, simple and very familiar in his communications to his people. And he used, his, he used Moses and he used Aaron. He used the priests. He used them to keep it simple and very familiar. Just God's words. And to continue to reinforce God's commandments to his people. God compares here in chapter 5 sin to disease and defilement. And holiness to health and cleanliness. And we will saw that in Leviticus when we studied chapters 11 through 15. And we will also see this mentioned in context once again in Numbers chapter 19. Now we'll see this word defile nine times in the, the, the chapter 5 of Numbers. 
and how he's warning them, you have to no longer to be defiled. You must move on uh, to cleanliness or to health or holiness. You cannot continue to live in a lifestyle that is, goes contrary to God. And we will see uncleanliness in the camp was dealt with quickly. And the unclean people were put out of the camp. They could not stay within the realm of the rest of the people if they were unclean. And the Lord clearly reminded the people of his holiness over and over and over, as we will see now and have been seeing and will continue, and of their need for holiness if they were to live near his dwelling place. If you're going to be near me, you need to holy so yeah you are not going to be hanging around the tabernacle around in the camp if you're unclean you're going to be moved outside for the sake of others and we will see that spiritual holiness was linked to and symbolized by physical bodily holiness and proper interpersonal relationships we will see that here in chapter 5 so anyone who contracted an illness, it rendered him or her ceremonially unclean. And because of that, they were not to be able to dwell within the camp and fellowship with God at the tabernacle, and no, could, no longer could they for a period of time until they went through the ceremonial cleanliness, it can take up to a week, for them to be able to come back into fellowship with their fellow neighbor and family. So we pick up here in Numbers chapter 5, verses 1, and we're going to see the effects of a physical defilement on the people. And it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge, and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse. So we see right here in the very first portion here, as Israel prepared to march into the promised land, all of these chapters we have been studying is to get the people ready to go into the promised land. God made sure his people were equipped and understood the boundaries of life before they go into the promised land and start a new beginning. And one of those things is that as to going to the promised land, we see that in, even through, again, Leviticus 13, the, how to deal with the leper or how to deal with discharge, Leviticus 15. And any priest who would touch a dead body except for a close relative, Leviticus 21, we studied these things, were commanded to be put out of the camp of Israel quickly until ceremonially clean. Now, God said that Israel must do what he had previously commanded because they were finding that as God had said it once, they were not following through with this. And many times, God reminds his people of what he's already told them to do. And he reminds them again and again. And there's consequences if, you don't, if you're not obedient to what God's already told you. Today, we say, why isn't God answering my prayers? Because it's a consequence because you haven't already done what God's already asked you to do. <laughs> so we have to be aware of the fact that there, we listen to God, we want to hear from God, and then once we hear from God, we need to be obedient to whatever he tells you to do. If not, there's going to be that, uh, that wall that you put up. Now probably this ordinance gave almost, as I read this, it's almost like the first hospital 
If you're sick, get them outside the camp and get them to the hospital outside. Another little outside post outside the main camp so that we can deal with this and help them and clean them and get whatever it needs to to be ceremonially clean. So it's like a hospital that was affected with this contagious disorders and, and it needs medical treatment. It, let's get them out of this camp and get them to the right place. And by putting out, it wasn't that any of these things made a person or proved that they were some notorious sinner because that's why they had the discharge or that's why they're a leper or that's why they had these diseases because they are an incredible sinner. That's why they got it. Be very careful because that's not uncommon today. If someone gets sick, oh, you don't have the faith, brother. Oh, you're, you've got sin in your life. That's why it's a consequence. That's why you got that disease. No, you can't assume those things. Leprosy, unclean discharges, dead bodies were reminders, as we know as a symbol, the effects of sin in one's life. Now, from which Israel must separate as they prepare to march in the promised land. This is also an analogy of our sin nature. Our sin nature is inherited from Adam. We chose individual acts of sin. Yes, that still happens. That's still a weakness of our flesh. But those individual acts of sin is different than our sin nature that was inherited. And when you became a born-again believer, that sin nature was dealt with. It was wiped away clean. It was no longer there. Can we still have acts of sin? Yes. We should not. It's disobedient. It goes against God. But our nature has changed as a born-again believer. Clearly at this stage in Israel's progress to the promised land, they have been organized, they've been ordered by God and arranged and given expectations and set forward. They have a vision of where they're going and what they're going to do. But they are now being challenged to purity. They're being challenged that they must live holy lives. For you to go into the promised land, you must get your inner man, your inner woman straight. These acts of sin must be dealt with. You have to live holy lives. And God is looking to make Israel a promised land people that are prepared and ready because they're purified or holy people in the name of God to represent him into that promised land. In verse 3, we, said, we see that you shall put out both male and female. You shall put them outside the camp, and that they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did, did so, and put them outside the camp, as the Lord spoke to Moses, so the children of Israel did. So they were obedient to what God told Moses. Moses told the people, the people did exactly what they are supposed to do. Now, you shall put out both male and female. There's no distinction there. There was no one got a better privilege than another. They were all equally treated in regards to these, this issue and were not excluded from the command. Neither perceived sympathy or perceived superiority because I'm a male over female. That None of that mattered at all because God equally sees man and woman and dealt with them with sin or dealt with, this case, disease uh, in, uh, in their lives. Because disease does not spare or the effects of disease does not 
spare the consequences on a male or female or anybody. It will hit all humans, all bodies. And so God says here, the consequence of sins ravages males, females, doesn't matter age. It happens and it has to be dealt with immediately. In the midst of which I dwell, he mentions there in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, he says, the great reason for this command of separation is because God lives in the, in the midst of the camp of Israel. So sin and its effects must be separated from. You cannot sit there and just think you're going to be able to draw close to God and be dwelled near God and not deal with the sin that's in your life. God is concerned with far more than our individual acts of sin. He demands our sin nature to be addressed. The core of who of that sinful nature has to be addressed. That's what we call being born again or regenerated. That's his primary focus on an individual. Only in Jesus can our sin nature, the old man, be crucified. And it's the nature of Jesus, the new man, be granted to us as new creations. God cannot abide with the old man but can with the new man. And you can't be a promised land person and have the promise in your life of eternal life separate from Jesus Christ, the new man in your life. You cannot be a promised land person if the ravages of sin are openly evident in your life. Certainly promised land people are not sinlessly perfect. As a born-again believer, a promised land person doesn't make you a sinlessly perfect person. But you are not to be practicing. You are not to be openly and obviously walking in the sinful nature. That you cannot call yourself a Christian and be doing that. The scripture is very clear. And that's what is it being addressed here in chapter 5. You can't have these, this disease. You can't have that sin nature that discharges, that, that, that defilement, and live with it. You have, to get, you have to be separate. You have to be dealt with that issue to be able to come back in in closeness. Now, when our Lord was on earth, he ministered to all people. He even touched lepers that we see in Luke 5. We see that people of all kinds of issues touched him. Women, a woman who was bleeding nonstop for years, grabbed the helm of his garment, touched him. We see that he even touched the dead in Luke 7. So Jesus didn't, wasn't sitting there wondering, concerned about touching dead bodies or touching people who had discharges or someone who was, uh, who was a leper. His touch brought healing to the people, but he was not defiled in the process. It was only when he died on the cross that he bore our defilement and the awful disease of our sin nature upon him. We see that noted in 1 Peter 2.24 and Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6. That's the physical defilement that is being addressed here in chapter 5. 
Now here in, in verse 5, as we continue in chapter 5, we're going to see the interpersonal defilement here. And we're going to see this played out here. Follow along. Verse 5, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any sin, that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full, plus one-fifth of it, and give it to the one he has wronged. Now, this sounds familiar, right? It takes us back to Leviticus chapter 5. As we saw there, it was addressed in specifics there. Because restitution is a commandment. It's commanded that anything this, a person does against someone else, it's a, a case of sinning against another person, like taking and stealing from someone, or withholding from God that which belongs to him. This is what you're supposed to give to God. But you say, I'm not going to give to God. I'm just going to keep it to myself. Either case, you're in a very bad place to be. And so God is going to teach his people. You can't just sit there and take from someone and say, okay, if I get caught and there's a problem, I'll just give it back. It's an attitude. Okay, I'll just give it back. No, no big deal. This is... Yeah, I'm not going to give to God what it's God's. Okay, if God takes it, okay, no big deal. But if you notice here in the scripture, not only will you to give back because of that trespass against someone, but you will also pay one-fifth or 20% more on top of it. Now you're being financially harmed. Now you have impact. So not only will you take $100 from someone, now you have to give $100 plus 20 No, now you're losing so there was a consequence that was being taught here of a restitution and it was a commandment that must be taken place of repaying with that which was taken or withheld and they were going to have that penalty of 20% on top of what they already took. In verse 18, or verse 8 I say, but if the man has no relative to whom the restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest in addition to the ram of the atonement with which atonement is made for him. So we see here in this part, oh, I took the hundred dollars from the guy. The guy ended up dying the next day. Man, I don't have to pay anything. Oh no, God says you have to pay one of the relatives. Well, I, there's no relatives. He's the last one. Then you're going to pay back even the 20% and you're going to give it to the priest. The priests get it. It's going to, be, it's going to cost you. You're going to give it to someone. In this case, to the priest, ultimately, if there's no relative uh, in, in sight. If there's no surviving kins, kinsman to redeem that. And the payment restitution was just as important, if not more important, for the guilty, to one, the guilty one to uh, pay as it was for the victim to receive it. It, it, it was a part of a, a, what God used to, to change the life of a person. To bring note to the consequences of their actions. It's going to cost them for doing and decisions they're making. And they maybe will not think twice next time. They will just run away from those thoughts. Run away from that, those situations. And not think that God is not watching. In verse 9 and 10, we see in every offering of all the holy things of the children of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. 
And every man's holy thing shall be his. Whatever any man gives, the priest shall be his. So certain offerings, if you remember back in Leviticus 3, one of them was the peace offering, were intended to have a portion of the offering as they gave it to the priest, a portion, like a good piece of the meat that was offered, that good piece of meat was then returned by the priest back to the person who gave it as a peace offering, was returned to that family so that they could have a fellowship meal with the Lord. Every man's holy things shall be his, it says there in the, in the first part of 9. And this means it's a command that reminds of the absolute right to the offer had to certain parts of the offerings. The priests couldn't take everything and keep it for themselves. They couldn't give it to someone else and, and they keep it for themselves. There was some part of that that was of holy things that were to then essentially be preserved or open door to the fellowship of God by the priests couldn't just take the offer's portion away the king couldn't just collect all the taxes all the money from people there's a portion that must be given to the people for their use and in the midst of this chapter chapter 5 on the separation from sin god reminds israel of the purpose of this separation or from the fellowship of of with god in the people of god because they wanted to ultimately teach them they must be disciplined and understand there's consequences when you're not living that holy life. That you're choosing to continue to live in that sinful nature as a non-believer. You're not going to, God's not going to hear your prayers. He's not going to bless you. He's not going to take, he may just preserve your life to try to get you to come to surrender your life to him. And that means to, to salvation. And he's going to constantly bring people in your life and bring, talk to you and speak to you directly about surrendering your life and giving your life to Christ and be born again. But once you're born again and now is, he's, that sinful nature has been dealt with, now he's going to deal with those sinful acts that you're still struggling with. And he doesn't want that. He wants holiness. You can't just sit there and call yourself a born-again believer, a Christian, and then say it's okay to continue to, to freely do sinful acts. You can't. You should not be able to because the conviction by the Spirit of God that lives within you should be so great that you should be listening to those and you should be fighting back and keeping away from those sinful acts to, so that you can live that holy life. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart that they shall see God. There's a promise that comes when you're in your heart, in your, your mind, and you just, I just want this pure heart, this pure mind. I want to be able to draw close to God. I want to hear from God. I want to be able to dwell with God in such a close way. But the Lord was teaching his people that sin is costly. Not only to them, but it also hurts people. And that true repentance demands honest restitution to those you've offended or those who've, you've offended God. Also, Israel not only had to be right with God, they also had to be in true unity. And I add the word true unity versus just saying unity because a lot of people say, well, hear the word unity, and they'll say, well, I go, I hang around, I, I, I'm, I'm part of it. But true unity... Unity is not just your physical body being present. It is about not only physical body being present, but your heart, your attitude is in oneness and unity with others. 
Challenges with marriages, challenges in relationships, challenges in, in fellowships, challenges. Because people are dwelling together, but they're not in true unity together. And God expects true unity. He's preparing soldiers to go into the promised land. And if they're at odds with each other in the ranks... Are they, they're, at, they're alienated from each other. They're sever, segregated and separated. And they're all kinds of these, I'm the, you know, the, you know, this part of the army and I'm this part of this and this part of the Air Force. And, and there's no unity. There's alienation from each other. And from the Lord, they will guarantee to be defeated by the enemy when they go into the promised land. So God was trying to get their lives individually right but also to get them in true unity as a body, a body of a nation of Israel, so that when they go into the promised land, their true unity and oneness in following God and loving one another, supporting one another as they go in against the enemy. And that is so true for us today. God is doing things in our lives so that your life is a holy life. And then with a holy life that you dwell in true unity with your brothers and sisters of the, in the Lord. So that you can fight. We can fight against the enemy as God is preparing us to take us to heaven. And we must understand these things. True unity begins with everybody being right with God and right with each other. That's the most simplest way I can say it to you. True unity begins with everybody being right with God and right with each other. And you and I have a responsibility to do our part. Next part we see is the separation here in dealing with sin is the uh, marital defile, uh, defilement. In verse 11, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, and a man lies with her carnally and is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it is concealed that she has defiled herself, there was no witness against her, nor was she caught. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself. So this is an interesting piece of the discussion here, but obviously important for God to deal with, and that is the, the spirit of jealousy. That's the context of here. He uses the marital defilement as the example of where... Um, the spirit of jealousy can come upon a person in one of two ways. That the spirit of jealousy is coming because it's true that the spouse has cheated on him or her. Or the other way around, that the spouse of the other thinks they're cheating on him, but they were not. It's just their mind goes off on some place that they just they should have brought their, their thoughts into captivity because they're making up things in their minds that are not true. But either way, we're going to see how God says that those spirit of jealousy is supposed to be dealt with because anything like that must be dealt with. You cannot let it just go. Faithfulness in marriage is a foundation stone for every society. 
For once the home is unclean, once the home is unclean, there's a defilement within the home. It becomes very weak and it becomes very divided. So goes the nation as well. When the family unit is not according to God's way, it will ruin not only the family, but the community and society and nation as a whole. This unique passage deals with the problem of the spirit of jealousy in a marriage. There's unfounded jealousy. And that unfounded jealousy has ravaged more marriages than you probably can imagine. Many people I have counseled over the years thinking that their spouse has cheated on them because they've brought the baggage of their parents' marriage or brothers' and sisters' marriages, or other marriages they are aware of, they bring it into their own marriage. And because their parents had uh, uncleanliness in their marriage, or their friends or neighbors or whatever, they automatically have this spirit of jealousy that they cannot handle. And it's unfounded, and it causes separation and division, and it causes a problem within their marriage. Justified jealousy has forced attention on confronting the sin of adultery here. God gives Israel a way to deal with adultery and deal with those who are accusing others for something they have not done. Sometimes jealousy in a marriage is revealed to be completely justified. I understand that. It's very clear, no questions. And in this situation we find that this woman was not seen by the husband. There was no text. There was no pictures. There was no Facebook message. There was no all these other methodologies that can, can possibly confirm a defilement within a marriage. It was within the camp. Someone was talking and talking to talking and someone said, oh, did you hear? Oh, yeah, that person. But none of that happened in this example. No witnesses, husband didn't catch him, nothing there. What do you do when the husband says, I think this something's going on and has a spirit of jealousy? The jealous husband has to bring a certain amount of, as we will see, to the priest. Everything is going to go bringing it to God and a representative God to deal with the issue. We see this in verse 15. Then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring the offering required for her one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He shall pour no oil on it, put no frankincense on it, because it is a grain offering of jealousy, an offering of remembering for bringing iniquity to remembrance. So this jealous husband was to bring a certain amount of barley meal and this grain only. It wasn't to be floured up with frankincense. It wasn't to be dashed with some oil. It was to customarily to bring that, which was usually customary, but just to bring purely a grain offering to the priest and with the woman, his wife. There was to be no oil, no frankincense, no sweetening, no making this a sweetening little thing. This is not going to be a big deal, but let me tell you what my, I believe my wife has done. No, there was no, it was just, just factual, plain factual 
moment here in front of the priest to hear and to see. There was no sweetness in this. Because God says it needs to bring back an offering for remembrance for bringing iniquity to remembrance. This offering was truly going to be a bitter moment in their relationship with each other. No sweetness involved because either the wife would be found guilty for adultery, which we know in the scriptures would lead to death, or a husband found guilty of unfounded suspicion being a false accusation of what his wife did not do. Either way, as you study this, it is a lose-lose situation, is it not? But I, I, the wisdom of God is so good. Because no man in his right mind is going to take his wife and this offering, as we will see, is placed in front of the tabernacle, in the front doors of the tabernacle, in front of the entire camp, to hear and to see. So because of the wisdom of God, he says, oh, you're going to make a false accusation there, buddy? You're going to have to say that in front of everyone. And when it's proven that it's not true, what are you going to say then? Woman, if you go out there and sleep it around because you were weak, just know you're going to be brought in front of the entire nation, in front of the tabernacle, and everyone's going to know your sin. That causes people to what? You better not be thinking of just loosely sleeping around or loosely making false accusations about your spouse. You better be factual. Because here there will be no oil, no frankincense. It's going to be so bitter as God talks about this, a bitter situation. It's not going to come out good. It's going to be brought, all your sin and what's happening within your household is going to be brought to light. And who wants that to happen? It wasn't that perhaps the wife committed adultery and didn't remember. It wasn't not for the husband or the wife to remember, but for the whole community to remember the terrible nature of adultery and false accusation. That is why God says, you're going to do one of these? Let's bring it in front of everyone so everyone in the camp can learn from your mistakes. Why? So you don't have to learn by doing it yourselves. You can learn from other people's mistakes. That's why God says, let's bring it right up front so that you will learn so that you won't make that same mistake. The wisdom of God. Verse 16 through 28. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. That which means before the tabernacle. Verse 17. The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel And take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. Then the priest shall stand the woman before the Lord, right in front of the tabernacle, uncover the woman's head, and put the offering for remembering in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse. Verse 19. And the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray to uncleanliness while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. Verse 20. 
But if you have gone astray under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse, and he shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people, when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell. Ooh, that's a... That's an interesting little statement right in front of her. Verse 22. And may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot. What is the woman supposed to do after the, he, the priest says this to her? And so a clear message. Then the woman shall say, Amen, so be it. Verse 23. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and he shall scrape the extra ink off. Remember, that's an ink pen. He scrapes off that, off that book, that paper, off, that, off of them off into the bitter water. And he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse and the water that brings the curse shall make her to become bitter. Then the priest shall take the grain offering of the jealous offering of the jealousy from the woman's hand, shall wave the offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the offering as his memorial portion, burn it on the altar, and afterward make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall be, if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully toward her husband, that the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter, and her belly will swell, her thigh will rot, and the woman will become a curse among her people. Verse 28, But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. So the water, that holy water that was preserved and given by the priests, was made bitter from the dust that was from the tabernacle. That's the presence of God. You came from the dirt. You'll go back to the dirt. This is, this is representation of just the, the presence here, right there on the floor of the tabernacle. And while the woman held the grain offering in her hand, a reminder of fellowship with God's present right in front of the tabernacle, the priest pronounced an oath over the woman. So it was very clear what was going to happen and what this whole purpose for. Even to uncover the woman's head is to unbind or let down her hair, is to, again, bring openness, everything to be transparent in front of God. And as he pronounces this oath, this solemn announcement, if you're guilty, there's consequences. If you're innocent, you're clean, you're set free. And if, you're, if, as you drink this bittered water, many people think that some magic potion, some magic mis something magically happens. I don't think so. I think the guilt, the shame, the bitter taste in the mouth of knowing that you are unclean and sinned and defiled... will eat you alive. 
And we see here your thigh will rot. Your belly swells. A human body's belly swells in the decaying process. And he's basically saying that God's spirit will see and know everything that you've done. And the woman had to say, amen, so be it. Meaning, I hear you, I understand, and whatever the consequence is, it is. She agreed. She understood. And if she was to be punished because she did cause adultery, then she understood and received the fact that there was going to be a punishment of a curse upon her life. She was not allowed the option of saying, wait, 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 wait. You have to understand something. My husband has been really mean to me. He's not very loving to me. He doesn't do this for me. He doesn't do that for me. He doesn't take care of me. He doesn't give me the security of this. She can't stand in front of the tabernacle, in front of the nation, and justify her sin because her husband is a, a terrible man. And that she, oh, you don't understand. We're, we, 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 I slept with that man because they, we love each other. God knows we love each other. We don't need to be married even though I'm already married. All kinds of rationalization. She can't do that. It doesn't wash at all. It's not a justification that you can accept or will accept. God will not accept that justification of trying to excuse why she laid with another man. And the priest not only spoke it to her, he actually wrote it down so it was clear and then took the ink from the actual written curse results of what would happen, the curse, and put it into the water as well because it made it very clear that this scraping of this dry ink into the water made it bitter along with the holy dust from the tabernacle. And that grain offering, that picture of fellowship with God, the thankfulness of God's provision is now cursed upon a woman and she would be drinking this bitter, this bitter water. Over time, the judgment of God will make it clear if she was guilty or innocent. It wasn't immediate. It was only a period of time would they see the consequences of her sinful action or her innocence. And it was through that process, it would become evident, it would see what would bear. And she came down to that same type of internal disease, especially affecting her womb, we see here at verse 28. She will be able to conceive children, or she will not be able to conceive women, or conceive children. But if she was free from the disease... She would bear children. It would show and vindicate that she was innocent. 
God clearly is communicating to the nation of Israel when it comes to marriage, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to a personal relationship with God. You have to fight each day to walk away from the temptations of sin and live and move toward holiness. Because if you don't, there's consequences that will come in people's lives. And obviously, God didn't, does not want couples to live in an ongoing state of jealousy. He didn't want those things to dwell in the bitterness and take root in the division and angry in, in a couple because he understands that mechanism of jealousy, those feelings, would absolutely destroy the marriage and the family. But it had to be dealt with because if it's true that she had a relationship outside of the marriage, it had to be dealt with because that man could not handle the spirit of jealousy coming upon him. And in that time, he couldn't just come to God. He had to come to the priest, to the tabernacle to deal with it. Today, we can go directly to the Lord and deal with those jealousies. They had to come to the priest. They had to deal with it. And God wanted to make sure not only it was dealt with, but also was taught so others could learn, don't go down these paths that this married couple's gone down. Deal with the issue within your marriage before it becomes destructive. Verse 29. This is the law of jealousy. When a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, and when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he shall stand the woman before the Lord and the priest shall execute all this law upon her. Then the man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her guilt. So the ceremony meant to resolve things. To bring some, some completion. Either the husband was right or wrong in his jealousy. And if the wife was in fact been an adulteress, he was right. If not, he was wrong. But it had to be settled. It had to be dealt with. You couldn't just let it linger and just push it under the rug. This was God's way of dealing with issues within the camp. Dealing with the impurity that is happening in people's lives or in marriages. To understand there's restitution that needs to take place when you do something against another person. It's going to cause problems and it's going to cost you for doing what you did against someone. And also the dealing with the jealousy within a marriage. And having that resolved. With all intentions of God to make sure Israel was pure. It was not defiled in any way before they go into the promised land. The promised land people in their personal res responsibilities or relationships must be dealt with. You and I cannot be promised land people. If your relationship with others are rotting. It's unclean. It's got to be healthy. You must make restitution and get things resolved within those relationships. So tonight, as we take a look at chapter 5, we all know sin causes 
major problems in one's life. But it never affects just you. It affects everyone around you. And you've heard it many times over and over. You get the vertical right, your relationship with God right, sin dealt with in your life, then you will have the horizontal relationship with others in balance as well. And you will have a life filled with joy, peace, peace 